Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. This week, we are offering three conversations from episode 47. Opinion leaders discuss big stories of summer. In this conversation, Manal Abdul-Malik selects the NIH as the standing up and funding of a liver cirrhosis network as her story of the summer, and then puts this in context by raising a question she received in a presentation. What can we do now to treat cirrhosis patients? The conversation revolves around the prospect for treating with metformin, statins, and beta blockers, older drugs with some prospect of managing portal pressure and other key cirrhosis-related conditions, until Luis Campbell suggests a way to use fiber scan and less expensive tests for providers to determine whether the older drugs they prescribe are actually helping. This episode is full of big thoughts and bold aspirations. Sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Roger Green. For our third and final conversation of this week's episode, we're back with our friend Manal Abdul-Malik, who we've not seen for a couple of months, few months maybe even. Hey, Manal, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Roger. Thank you for having me back. So we're also happy to see Manal, that I can't tell whether Louise or Manal has a bigger smile right now, but um, it's competitive and they're both huge. We both have good smiles. Yeah, we have both have lovely smiles. I always love Manal, which it comes on. Always funny. Yes, I, I agree. So let's just dive right in, okay? Uh, icebreakers. Manal, one good thing that's happened in the last week or two that you want to share with our audience? Well, um, one good thing that's happened in the last week or two, I have succumbed to the challenges of planning my daughter's 13th birthday party. Not young enough to do what we typically did and not quite old enough to do anything else. So I'm kind of in a black box with 13, but we're moving on. <laughs> so it's been a lot of fun, uh, you know, watching kids grow up and landmark birthday for my daughter. So without giving too much away, is there anything special going on at the party that she won't know about because she doesn't listen to this podcast? Oh, is there, you know, she practically planned this on her own, you know, made it easy for me. A little go-karting, a little horseback riding, a few nice, you know, meals in between, a whole day's event, I guess. Mom's just a good dog. Can I come? That sounds fantastic. <laughs> I'm right there with you. Go-karting, horseback riding. How do you do better than that? That sounds like a fantastic day. Sounds like a good day. It sounds great. Okay. So Louise, what do you have since yesterday? Well, I'm going to go to the one that just to wind you up that I didn't use that I could have used that you didn't want me to use, which was the fact that the Crystal Palace beat Tottenham 3 0. <laughs> so back to the old she said she said Manal Roger said I, he was happy that I didn't choose that one as one of my ones yesterday so I get the ability to do it today <laughs> yeah and it wasn't clear whether Louise was going to be here today so I felt safe about doing that but obviously it was a mistake all right so I guess my good news of the last 24 hours you know what my best news I can't really talk about because it's, it's a client information but over the last week five or six different companies usually small usually specialized in some way have reached out to us to talk about something in one episode of the podcast Yes, I want to be introduced to someone. I am amazed at the breadth of innovation around things like uh, digital health and different ways of patient education and communication that are out there. We've talked about excitement in terms of drug development advances and learning more about the disease and non-invasive technologies making progress. There are a whole other areas in terms of behavioral health, digital health, education, where people are doing some fantastic things. And it's really, it has become one of the better parts of my job to get to learn about that. So let me just stop there and turn to Manal and say, this is your show. One story of the last few months that you think is really important for the fatty liver community, and then take five, seven minutes and let us know what it is and why you feel that way about it. One very exciting event 
that I believe has been very important in the past few months is the NIH's recognition and investment in liver disease, and particularly where it matters most, which is cirrhosis, and the funding of the new liver cirrhosis network. Now, this is a beautiful transition from the investment that was initially made as a consortium with the non-alcoholic steatohepatitis clinical research network when there was a time where there was no drugs in drug development for fatty liver disease at all. And it started off with the PIVIN study and then followed up with the Flint study. And we then had a complete enrichment of new compounds and this emerging wave of drug development in fatty liver disease. We are most challenged, of course, is this arena of increasing prevalence of patients with cirrhosis and advanced liver disease. We have had, sadly, many promising compounds potentially fail in making any uh, impact on primary endpoints in advanced liver disease, whether that be F3 or F4. And in recognition of this significant public health need, the NIAAA, NIDDK, and NCI kind of came together and funded what is now a consortia of centers across the country who will be completely immersed in studying cirrhosis of all types, the natural history, formulating a database, evaluating biomarkers, risk factors, and even conducting together a consortia-wide trial using statins as potentially repurposed drug that may be beneficial for cirrhosis. But in the tail of that, what really happened to me this summer was was somewhat taken aback and grounded when I was giving a talk on, on emerging therapies and a very astute physician said, but Manel, for those of us that aren't in drug development and have been waiting a decade for drugs to come forward and you're telling us it's maybe two or three years, what are we going to do right here, right now? And how are you, you know, in this field going to help us figure out what armamentarium to use pending pending a drug being available? So those of us that are with industry and, and FDA and academic medical center are arriving a wave, a very exciting one at that of drug development. But those that are in the community caring for these patients are feeling challenged. You know, what do I do? What can I offer? I offer diet and exercise. It's not really working. Help me. And I stumbled across a fascinating paper that came out this summer. And actually, uh, it adds to an increasing body of literature. But this was a paper by Ritzig and his colleagues. Senior author was Jacob George. And it was published in APNT, Elementary Pharmacology and Therapeutics this summer. And I found it fascinating because this was a pilot study, but it was a randomized clinical study of the acute effects of metformin versus placebo on portal pressure in patients with cirrhosis. Now, why is this important? Well, why we really care about fatty liver disease or any liver disease is the ultimate endpoints for which our patients succumb to negative clinical outcomes. You know, how they feel, how they function, complications of ascites and variceal bleeding and bacterial peritonitis and ultimately complications of renal syndrome or pulmonary syndrome, many complications that ultimately are a consequence of what really matters, which is cirrhosis, not the inflammation, not the fat. I found this paper fascinating. The field as a whole has kind of been somewhat dismissive of metformin or even statins or potentially many repurposed drugs that could be beneficial for our patients with advanced liver disease. And what this, this group did is they randomized 16 patients to receive one dose of metformin, one dose, 1,000 milligrams, and 15 patients who received placebo. And they performed hepatic vein pressure measure, measurements, catheterization. 
organizations to measure hepatic venous pressure gradient and endocyanine green infusion, which is a surrogate of liver function. And what was fascinating is that they actually demonstrated a clinically significant improvement in hepatic venous pressure gradient in 46% of those that received 1,000 milligrams at metformin at 90 minutes compared to placebo for which there was no change in portal pressure. Not only was there a decrease in portal pressure in a good proportion of patients below 12 millimeters of mercury, which is what we define as clinically significant portal hypertension or 20% reduction in the portal pressure. So 46% of patients who received this metformin had a significant drop in portal pressure compared to 8% in patients who received a placebo without any other alterations in blood pressure, hemodynamics, or intolerances. So even a drug like metformin may have secondary benefits beyond improvements in fatty liver alone. And what this brought into light when I started thinking about this question that this provider challenged me, yes, I will wait two or three years for additional therapies to become available, but how do I protect my patients who have cirrhosis or who are progressing to cirrhosis? This paper I thought was was incremental. Now, it made me stop and think because it's not just this one paper. There is a wealth of epidemiologic data that's emerging to suggest that a drug as simple as metformin, which is pennies, can decrease risk of liver cancer. And when you combine this with emerging data for medications that can readily be purposed that are also pennies like statins. There's data to suggest that statins can also decrease portal pressure. So what these authors proposed is, wow, we saw this after one dose of metformin. And yes, this needs to be studied further. What gave me pause is, wow, if this can be observed with metformin and many of my patients, all my patients with fatty liver disease or insulin resistance and can use metformin, but when I combine that and, and, and put it in the framework of the literature that suggests that statin use, and there was a large study evaluating simvastatin, and simvastatin at a dose of 20 milligrams increasing to 40 milligrams also reduced hepatic venous pressure gradient when compared to placebo and improved the endocyanine green clearance, suggesting that it improved even liver function. So when you think about the armamentarium of medications we can use, so we got a metformin that improves portal pressure. We have statins that improve portal pressure. We have beta blockers, carvedilol and propranolol, that decrease portal hypertension. That if we can readily leverage and effectively treat using repurposed drugs, each and every metabolic risk factor of insulin resistance and hyperlipidemia and hypertension and combine such drugs together, we may in, in fact alter the natural history of hepatic decompensation and minimize portal hypertension, which leads to the development of varices, variceal bleeding, or ascites. So while this paper is a small pilot study that certainly warrants further prospective evaluation. It speaks to the fact that, you know, drug-like metformin is one safe, it's inexpensive, and it can readily be rolled out into very large-scale clinical trials to look at long-term benefit. And, you know, I kind of chuckled because I I said, well, yeah, I I could potentially make the perfect drug for Naffold and Nash. I would put in this drug, you know, a little statin, a little beta blocker, a little aspirin, and potentially a little metformin. And if combined all together, can we, in fact, uh, get a drug that decreases the risk 
of hepatic decompensation. I mean, people can live and die with cirrhosis in and of itself, but they have negative clinical outcomes not related to the fibrosis itself, but related to the the consequences that come downstream of that, the alterations in vascular remodeling and endothelial function. And so if we can prevent those hemodynamic alterations, we can actually decrease morbidity and mortality from cirrhosis. So it really made me think about how we can um, empower our providers while we continue moving the drug development landscape forward such that they feel that they can offer their patients something right here, right now in the absence of an FDA-approved drug. That's fascinating and raises a few questions. You are the first person back in January, February, who impressed on all of us that you might not have to reverse fibrosis in order to make a meaningful change in a patient's life if you could simply stop its progression. That's really what I hear you talking about. Now, reversal would be great, but even if you could just stop progression at that point, people could have quality of life. And I've also been bold enough to say that in retrospect, we have been hindered as a field by, yes, insensitive endpoints to the very high bar that we've set for a reversal of fibrosis uh, by one stage in one to two years, and then having insensitive enough clinical endpoints to ascertain a difference in treatment compared to placebo, even if such a difference were to be noted, you know, is it clinically meaningful? Did it change the natural history of that disease? And I do believe that stability is a a fabulous endpoint in and of itself. And we're starting to see that evolution in some of the data emerging with semaglutide, for example. There's a signal that we could potentially decrease the risk of fibrosis progression, although we did not see a significant uh, reversal in fibrosis in 96 weeks. So taking patients and keeping them stable without clinically meaningful events is a very reasonable outcome. The challenge is designing trials around such endpoints is, is hard, and we are going to potentially need to reframe how we approach clinical trials for those patients with advanced liver disease as a clinician if I were to have 100 patients with cirrhosis and none of them decompensated in the upcoming three to five years, that's a win. Whereas we currently are seeing about a 20% risk of hepatic decompensation in well-compensated patients with advanced liver disease on the order of two to three years. So we care about fibrosis in so much that it's a surrogate for these endpoints. But if we were to take patients and just prevent the endpoints and even utilize an armamentarium of medications that are readily available and probably should be used in patients with metabolic-related liver disease to improve insulin resistance, to improve lipids, to improve blood pressure. And if each one of these in and of themselves has secondary downstream effects on a target hemodynamic response, then it makes sense. And so I turn to the provider and say, you know, you need to drill down to each and every risk factor that this patient has and treat it because pending the ability to put statins and metformin to the test and carbon Vedalol to the test, compounds for which we have measures of hepatic venous pressure gradients compared to placebo, put them to the test and validate these early response. We have nothing to lose by repurposing these drugs and and treating the comorbidities and hoping that we also get downstream improvements in, um, in decompensation. 
It's an overarching goal, but I think it's a very low-hanging fruit, so why not? You're dealing with drugs that where the safety profiles, for better or worse, are pretty well-known, usually for better, and we don't have better solutions. It's interesting. So, Louise? I just find it fascinating. I'm just listening to the theories behind it, and it's great. I went to, how would I measure that? How would I look to that in the real world? And obviously, I use FibroScan, and we know that we can use FibroScan to measure pressure. And we know that there are multiple studies with FibroScan using internal pressures to look at how long you fast before you do a FibroScan. So it's that's why it's advised more than three hours after a meal, because of those internal pressure gradients when they came down. From what Manal was saying there, maybe we can predict fasting, non-fasting FibroScans in people with fibrosis. With fibrosis, it causes a peripheral resistance to the blood flow going through, as we know. Therefore, if there's a peripheral resistance, the blood flow stacks. The more blood coming through the liver, the higher that pressure becomes. Maybe we can predict when they're getting increased pressure gradients as their disease alters by doing fasting, non-fasting fibre scans. Also, if you can couple that with blood pressure, you can see the effect within the heart because it should not be normal every time you eat to really increase your portal gradient with that increased fasting blood flow because that's going to put pressure on the heart, which is presumably where we see the cardiomyopathy. So we do have tools to be able to support and look at this within clinical research in without putting mass invasive portal gradients in there. So if we can combine those in trials to look at how we can measure that pressure with kilopascals in a simple way in clinical environments with your primary care physicians, if somebody started somebody on metformin and reduced the portal pressures, you would probably see it within the fibroscan results in primary care. And for those where it didn't or that they started to rise, one would loosely presume that we might be seeing an increase in the, the fibrosis levels. Obviously, we'd have to look at inflammation. We'd have to look at everything else. But if you're doing fibroscans very regularly, you can see this if you do it regularly enough. And that's what tools like this can do because we need a way to monitor it in clinical care and in practice that patients can see a change and a physician can see a deterioration or a positive change. We can see it with panel on use. We can see it. So yeah, that's where what Manal was discussing took me to how I can measure that. How can I assist? What can we do that we can put readily into doing a trial or clinical care? And in fact, to what you're saying, Louise, there is data now emerging that these non-invasive markers can be followed longitudinally and inform a clinically meaningful outcome, whether it's alterations in transient elastography over time, alterations in FIT4 over time, alterations in ELF score, and even very exciting data from Melina Allen suggesting that even a one kilopascal score and change in both differences at baseline, but over time in MR elastography can inform a clinically meaningful outcome. So it is conceivable that we, pending an FDA-approved drug, that our providers can effectively utilize repurposed drugs such as metformin or statins or carvedilol in combination to treat the complications of metabolic syndrome. Both the statins and even the beta blockers have demonstrated an increase in hepatic endothelial function, a decrease in thrombogenesis, a decrease in inflammation, a decrease in oxidant stress, and a decrease in hepatic fibrogenesis. So why not effectively empower ourselves to be able to use what we have readily available, and which is really pennies. For affecting a global epidemic, we really do need 
cost-effective therapies that can be readily available. And while we may be seeing FDA approval on the foreseeable horizon here, remember that even after every new drug approval, we're still going to have potential delays in access to care. The landscape still has yet to be defined depending on which drug, when, and, and in what capacity it will be approved. Clinical outcome is also on the foreseeable horizon. It's very hard to look at somebody and say, wait, just wait. You know, how long can you possibly say that to somebody who knows that they have cirrhosis? Wait and do what? It's a point of contention and frustration. It doesn't really go over very well. But I think as this exciting data accrues, both with statins and with metformin and with beta blockers or even ARBs and ACE inhibitors, for which we're seeing an effect in animal models on fibrogenesis, we should use these drugs to our empowerment to be able to concomitantly treat our patients who have an indication for their use. And I, I, I do believe that the funding of the cirrhosis consortia is going to propel us forward in our understanding of this advanced liver disease and how to approach our patients in such a manner that we can have evidence-based medicine to inform our decisions and our approach to their care, not only with fatty liver disease, but with other forms of, of advanced liver disease as well. So let me pull on a couple, as we get towards a half an hour, let me pull on a couple small threads here and see what comes out. Right? Um, thread number one, what percentage of your patients with advanced fibrosis or compensated cirrhosis are currently taking statins, would you guess? Sadly, too low a percentage. Well, actually, the funny thing is that's not a bad answer given what this conversation has said, right? Yeah. The bad answer is everybody. No. You know, we pooled our use of statins here at a big academic tertiary medical center, and in our liver clinic, it was only about 30%. And across many other liver clinics at tertiary medical center, it's typically around 25 to no more than 40%. There's the concern of use of statins in patients with chronic liver disease. Those concerns have been kind of debunked, but we have to make a prudent push to put our patients back on statins who can otherwise tolerate them and use them and to re-educate providers to feel no reservations for using statins in patients with pre-existing elevation of liver aminotransferases. And in fact, there's data that it may actually improve liver enzymes. So sadly, even at a ivory tower institution, the broad use of statins in patients with fatty liver disease and even other forms of chronic liver disease is relatively low. So we can increase that substantially. So I often find myself putting patients on statins and sending them back to their doctors re with reassurance. How about metformin? You know, I, metformin is used broadly as a backbone for, for treatment of metabolic syndrome, mm -hmm. uh, but typically sometimes stopped when patients go on insulin or in fact have other potential therapies that can be used. SGLT2 inhibitors are promising GLP-1 agonists. So I think metformin's almost fallen by the wayside, both with the treatment of fatty liver disease or even sometimes diabetes. There were early studies that didn't suggest it was a um, strong therapeutic for NASH per se, but those studies were powered relatively small and there was mixed results from various pilot studies. But I think where we don't have effective therapies as of yet, if we have reason or an indication for use of metformin in the backbone of a treating metabolic syndrome and such use decreases the risk of primary liver cancer, decreases portal pressure, optimizes insulin resistance, induces a little weight loss, then maybe we need to not be completely putting on the shelf these, these long-term therapies that may be oldies, but yet have some hidden goodies in them too. So I love this conversation, in part because I'm a big fan of counterintuitive thinking by nature, and in part because as we progress, we learn things differently than we knew them before. 
So it's entirely possible even that the way we thought about the disease 10 years ago, 15 years ago, would have made it less likely for us to value the level of benefit that you can get from a metformin or from a statin, right? We were looking for, we were looking for bigger hits and we thought we were going to get more dramatic drugs. This has been, it's, it's great. It's counterintuitive. It's practical. You could do it tomorrow and it deals with patients who need help. Louise, do you have anything you want to add before we go to final question? The only thing I had to add was that when Manal was describing, I put a bit of metformin here, I put a bit of this there, I did think a cauldron and doing stipping it all in <laughs> and, uh, and mixing it together it was the way you described it so beautifully <laughs> it's, it's kind of the opposite of stone soup yeah, isn't yeah. it everything you throw in has value yeah that's good a sprinkle that's of good. this actually it kind of it kind of is stone soup because you just start with nothing right it's good <laughs> i like it okay uh, closing question. One thing a listener should take away from this conversation. As I was reading the literature and, and reflecting on this portal hypertension and cirrhosis, I came across a beautiful review by Dr. Jamie Bosch, who I admire. He's a brilliant man and has, has really contributed significantly to this field in, in his profession. And he wrote something in this editorial that I'll leave you know your listeners with. And this isn't just for any listener, but he was reflecting on the field. And his review was actually published in February 2020 in clinical liver disease. And it was entitled Portal Hypertension and Cirrhosis from Evolving Concepts to Better Therapies. And he ends this commentary with an old Danish proverb, and I won't read it in Danish, but it's translated to be, it is difficult to make predictions, especially about the future. But Dr. Bosch goes on to say, but in this field, the sky is not covered by stormy clouds. On the contrary, it looks Looks like a clear summer night with a myriad of brilliant stars illuminating the dreams of the young investigators who are accepting the challenge of continuing to improve the prognosis of patients with cirrhosis. So to all those young investigators out there, we got a lot of work ahead of us. To all our patients out there, I think there is starry nights and sunny skies ahead. And to the pharma industry and to all those that have contributed to the advancements of this field, we can look back on the past decade and say, wow, look how far we've come. And I do believe that our progress is going to move faster and faster. So on that note, I think I can finish because Dr. Bosch said it more brilliantly than I could. But you but you filled in all the detail, which is good, really helpful. Louise, what, what, uh, just a sentence or two. I'm not going to add anything to Manel's, but I would have loved to hear a reading in Danish. <laughs> Well, I guess you're, you're going to need to get Dr. Bosch on, on your, your... It was your, a beautiful uh, bit of poetry, and, I, and he'll have to come on so he can do it in Danish. That's worth thinking about. You know, I think a lot of history of this industry in the last 20 or 30 years has been about situations similar to what you described, where people go take a look at old drugs and new lights and see different things. So I would encourage everybody to keep thinking about that all the time, particularly in the face of problems that either appear intractable or where patients appear at real risk. And the isn't evident. Thank you for bringing that. that. That's been a fantastic addition to this episode and this podcast. And I'll, you and I should catch up in a couple of weeks and find the next time for you to come on. Um, hopefully, hopefully before you're part of the faculty for ASLD in November. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Manel. Enjoy your day. Bye bye. Bye bye. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the contents of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next Wednesday, September 29th with our next episode. I hope you will join us then. And until then, stay safe, surf on, see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. <laughs>